if you would turn to Numbers chapter 13 in your Bibles. Good morning again. Good morning to Wilmington. It's good to have you with us. And I want you to think back as to the words that you heard read during uh, the time of music. The way in which uh, the people who had this profound and powerful God come to a break point. I don't know, what, what do you call it? A threshold where God didn't get any less powerful. God didn't get any less miraculous. Manna was still falling. Water was still being given when needed. Every one of those people had a memory of the, the seas parting. Every one of those people had a memory of the, uh, the judgments in Egypt. That very same God who boiled the mountain when he gave the Ten Commandments and shook the earth. They all knew that God. And they get to the threshold of the promised land. Nothing. They wept. I'm trying in my own spirit to figure out exactly what it was, and I don't know if I'm sure, but I, I think these are the sorts of things that at least I can identify with in my own life that sort of play out. I wonder if they thought that the purpose of following God was for him to get them to the land of promise, but then the land of promise would just be given to them. Like, we will follow God, And he's going to give us the land. And so when they arrived at the land to realize that taking the land was going to be more work, despair. I think, I wonder if they thought the land would just be freely given. Huge vacancy sign up, they would just go in and inhabit this prize paradise. I think that, I wonder if that was the case, but but nothing is, nothing's free. You You know that, I know that, nothing's free. When I was newly married, uh, I was told about this vacuum cleaner that used water. It's so painful, I can hardly tell it. <laughs> well, I was told, hey, you don't have to buy it. If you just give the person a little bit of your time, you would get a free knife for the kitchen. And I thought, because I love my wife, I thought she could use a new knife. So she came home and I went, honey, I scored you a knife. We just have to spend a few minutes with these people. We don't have to buy anything. And she went, you've got to be kidding me. Don't you know what happens? You know, and it was like two and a half hours later, we practically had to kick this person out of the house. It was so embarrassing. And then we're stuck with the reality of how dirty our carpets really are. You know, so we didn't even buy it, but we don't even want to touch our carpets anymore. Uh, The knife was not free. It cost an awful lot. And I did it to her again a few years later. (laughs) I did. It was a timeshare this time. (laughs) Oh, it was so painful. But, you know, there was going to be a free TV. and The chance. I was a semifinalist, I told her. (laughs) All we need to do is go there and listen for a few minutes, and we'll have a chance to get a free TV. Nothing is free. 
And I wonder if we think that way with God, that he'll just give us something for free. Our job, we show him a little bit of faith, and then he gives us something for free. We just, he just needs a few minutes of our time. And then we'll get, you'll get a better marriage, better job, whatever. You fill in the blank. You, you're free, set of knives. Whatever it is, you're a semifinalist with the Lord. Just give him a few minutes. And when we come up to the realization that no, not free, that it's never, ever God's intention to leave us, like send us away into this sort of free land of joy. It's never his, that's never his goal is to drop us off, say good luck. I think the people in the 13th chapter, and we're going to dig into it more, but I think that the Israelites did not see the value. They did not see God developing faithfulness in them as an end of itself. I think they just wanted to get to the land. But when you get to the land and realize the land requires taking, and that taking requires an even greater measure of faith with God than I heretofore have, They wept. Let's just look at a few, a few I'm going to just touch on a few things in the 13th chapter. You've heard it. But, um, in the 27th verse, the spies come back. There's one spy from each tribe, and the spies come back, and they say the land, in fact, is as we were expecting. It's good, spacious land, milk and honey. It's good land. That's what they say in verse 27. But they add to it a little bit. At least 10 of the 12 spies add to it. They say there's also happens to be a lot of people there, lots of peoples, Malachites, Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites, lots of them. And they have strongholds. They have fortified towns. And there's giants there also, the people of Anak, Anakites, giants, Goliath-type people. So the land's good, but there's a lot, of, a lot of people there. It's just not empty, waiting for the Hebrews to show up and inhabit. They are going to have to take it. Furthermore, they're going to have to take it from people who are fortified and big. In verse 30, Caleb speaks out. He gets one verse. It's like a one-verse defense. He says, I mean, this is a paraphrase, but almost like, listen. Don't, don't bite off on that. We can take this. This land is ours. And the other 10 spies are kind of like, yeah, but you can just almost feel them brushing him into the background. And they come back in the following verses, 31 and, and on towards the end of the chapter, the writer says that they gave what he calls a bad report, which is not like a bad report, like a negative report. It's a bad report, like not entirely honest report. Uh, Lacking kind of journalistic ethics. That's what it means. That's what the Hebrew means there. Bad is in 
morally bad report. And they don't really say anything new. They embellish what they've already said. So instead of saying there's a lot of people there, they say, listen, the people are stronger, stronger than we are. Do you hear the slant? And rather than saying that there's some cities in there that are fortified, they actually say, listen, people, the land will devour us. It's over the top. The land will devour us. And then speaking about the giants, they say, we appear to them like grasshoppers. (laughs) In other words, they are, with their report, are trying, trying to convince the people not to go in. And they weep. They weep that night, 14 verse 1. The whole congregation weeps. This is maybe a question. This morning, our time in the Word, I want you to ask yourself, what is God trying to give you? I don't mean what do you want. You know what you want. What is God trying to give you? Because very often what God's trying to give us is different than what we want. You know, we want a better job. God wants us to have more faith. We want a better marriage. God wants us to have more faith. We want uh, to have a job. God wants us to have more faith. God is always mining in us greater faithfulness. While we are pursuing a promise our idea of a promise, our conception of a promise. I I have to imagine from the mountain of God all the way down to the the area where they sent the spies, in their minds they were building up this expectation of what the promise of God would be. Man, if he could part the seas, it's got to be a pretty good promise. Took us out of Egypt with the Nile. I mean, it's got to be, we don't just have a little God. He's like a Mount Zion God. And then they show up and have to take it themselves? It's because God wasn't really trying to give them the land. God is trying to mine faithfulness in them. Let's follow uh, what happens here. Uh, Chapter 14, I'll start in verse 1. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's just catalog uh, sort of the nature of their grumbling here. At the very least, at the very least, the the, the most gentle thing we could say 
is that they are saying that the promise of God is not worth the effort it takes to get it. They're looking into the promise and they're thinking it's not worth it. At the very least. A little bit stronger, they could be saying, actually, the promise is not good. I wouldn't be surprised if they they sort of felt like a false bill of goods had been sold to them by God. You mean that's the promise? That I get to go and risk my family's safety to take land from giants with forts? That's the promise? It's better off had we never left. It's better off had we died in this desert, which you need to remember that because God's going to give them what they prayed for. Be careful. Sometimes God calls something you said a prayer and answers it. All right? At the strongest, this is what I think God could be hearing. God is not good to us. And Moses is a bad leader. God is not good to me. Something you wanted. But he's trying to grow faith in you. But it's something you wanted. Let's keep reading. Let me pick up in verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. I think that Moses and Aaron fear what's coming. I think for them, I think they have a sense of what was just said, and for them it's, dear God, this is going to hurt. So they, they prostrate themselves before the Lord. Verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. Joshua and Caleb, Caleb does most of the talking, but Joshua and Caleb make this one last effort Sort of like, do you know what you're doing to the people? Like the very same God that brought us is the same God who will bring us. God never drops you off. God never delivers you to the answer of your prayer and then says, good luck with that. That's not his goal. 
And God is never going to bring you to a place where his intent is that it will require less faith from you. Why would he do that? The only thing of any real lasting consequence in you is faith. If the Lord truly loves you, would he not be constantly thinking of the best ways to grow your faith? And those ways invariably and often are involuntary and hard. I'm not saying that every day of our life is going to be designed to be the hardest day of our life and that it's always going to be difficult, but we should not expect the seasons of challenge to dissipate. A man and a woman get pregnant with a child. They get excited. They pray and pray and pray and pray for this child. It's born. Is that where faith ends? Just any young parents here testify? Is that, is that where the hard part ends? Is that the promised land? <laughs> right. I'm a big believer in nursemaids. Like, bring me the kid at six months. Because it's hard. It's hard. Is that the promised land? And then you have this kid who won't sleep or ever say thank you, and you're thinking, if I can just get to two years old, everything will be better. (laughs) Yeah, suckers. (laughs) Right? And listen, we got them all the way up almost to 18. It is beautiful, faith-filled, continual refining of child and parent. Why, Why do we expect it to be otherwise? You need to ask yourself, do you just want the nice thing God might give you or do you want to be a child of faith? Because they look very different. And one in the midst of hardship can sound like this. You're not a good God. Why have you done this to me? It would be better had I never met you in the first place. Well, Caleb tries... The response for that is they pick up stones. Which will not be the only time in Scripture that people try to stone the promised one. Right? And then the Lord says to Moses, enough. Enough. How long? How many times am I going to be rejected? We entered into a covenant. We entered into a promise. I've been entirely faithful. How long... How long will I abide people who are continually unthankful before me and rebellious before me? Moses, how about I just strike them all down and I start over with you? So I'm going to read the next several verses. I'm going to ask you to remember throughout this series, there's been this mantra, Christ is a better Moses, okay? Please think of that as I read. Christ plays Moses' role in the big story of God, right? Because in the big story of God, salvation is being rescued from slavery in Egypt, right? That is, that, has, that, that story plays a role. We are rescued from the dominion of darkness and we are brought into the kingdom of the son he loves, Christ Jesus. That is the picture. So we come out, from slavery into his salvation, kind of forever across the sea of death. We're safe 
from the perils of that old world. This is the Christian story. Then God writes and prints us with his truth and gives us his spirit and never leaves us, right? He tabernacles among us and is with us day and night everywhere we go because his Holy Spirit will never abandon us. And the Lord is bringing us to a good place, not to drop us off so that we no longer need faith, but he's bringing us to a good place where our faith can fan out and express itself in worship, okay? And in that, Christ is a better Moses. So listen as I read. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Let me stop there. Moses is about to make a second appeal, but his first appeal, <clears throat> for one, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people to the Lord for mercy. See it. And he says to the Lord, Lord, your reputation is at stake. That's what he says. He says to the Lord, all of the nations around us have by now heard from the Egyptians about you, about what you've done and about how you are with these people. All of the nations around have heard that unlike other gods, you meet with your people and fellowship with your people. That's what it means by face to face. And you lead your people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Everywhere you go, you're with them. The world around this rabble of people understands you to be a fellowshipping God of great might. And if you strike them dead, what are they going to figure? Are they going to figure you didn't have enough power to bring them in? Now, I don't think that Moses is trying to fan the pride of God. In fact, these sorts of dialogues, I think the Lord enjoys putting in for us because it's where he shows us his nature. This is where the Lord plays with his cards, like facing you. You get to see everything in his hand. He, I want you to see me. And Christ is a better Moses anyway. It's the interplay between this little Christ and this God that is allowing God to be seen. And you'd say, well, why does God care about what other nations think of them? It's because God cares about other nations. Already, it's so beautiful, already Moses knows it's not about the Israelites. God cares that the nations around the Israelites would think accurately about him. Because God didn't come to save the Israelites. God came to save the earth. God is constantly, this is why he cares about our holiness and our righteousness and our steadfastness and our pursuit of him. Because God cares about the reputation that you and I extend of him to other people. You and I bear witness to him. And Moses is saying, listen, Lord. 
if you don't bring these people who you called yours into the land, the conclusion the nations will make is you were unable. The, the amazing thing is, the truly miraculous thing, is that it's not really that miraculous, though it certainly is, for God to part a sea and send fire from the sky and kill the firstborn and make a, a torrent and, a, and fire and cloud and all of those things and manna from heaven. That's not nearly as miraculous as God's ability to bring faithless people into faith. That's what he's doing. And Moses says to the Lord, Lord, there's more at stake here. Furthermore, he says this, 17, and now please let your power of your Lord be as great as you've promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Now Moses, likely you cannot see it because the Old Testament remains obscure to, to, to us, but what Moses just did here is pretty remarkable. He just threw God's words back at him. He quoted God word for word. <clears throat> you may recall last year we dealt with the golden calf in the mountain of God. You know, God was on the top of the mountain and he called Moses up the mountain and Moses was up there for 40 days. You, you feel the rhythm here. He's up there for 40 days during which time the people at the base of the mountain got bored and tired and frustrated, and they ran out of faith. And so they said to Aaron, hey, make us a God that we can worship. And so Aaron molded this golden calf, and they bowed down and worshiped it. Well, Moses was up on the mountain with God, and God saw it. And when God saw it, this is Exodus 32, he said to Moses, hey, can you step aside for a second? I need to strike them down. And he told Moses what they were doing. And he said, this is, this is what he said to Moses. Moses, I'm going to strike them down and I'm going to start over with you. Do you hear the pattern? And I will make from you a people mightier than they. And Moses, because, right, Jesus is a better Moses. Moses sought the Lord's grace and mercy, just like he does here. And you know how he did it? He petitioned the Lord on his reputation. He said, listen, Egypt knows you. What are they going to make of this? Be as great as they think you are, essentially is what he says. And he petitions God with God's own words. And he said, and you made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And God said, I hear you, Moses. I won't strike them down. In fact, in fact, I will renew a new covenant with them. But hear this. I, the Lord, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he says these very words, forgiving iniquity and transgression, compassionate, that was a year ago. That was a year ago from this moment. Not only in our church, but actually historically. It was one year earlier. And Moses is now standing before the Lord, quoting back God's words that he heard a year ago on the mountain. You said you were compassionate. You said you had steadfast love. You said you would forgive our iniquity. We've been relying on your forgiveness this whole time. Show us again. 
the section in verse 18 where it says, but he will no means clear the guilty. What, what, it's, what it's saying, just to sort of clear it up for you, is, is God is going to show mercy without, without ceasing to care about righteousness. So to the wickedness of the world that continues, it will receive due recompense from the Lord, perfect righteousness and justness in judgment. But to those who turn to the Lord, mercy. God has promised it. It is part of his nature. So, I mean, even now, think of the worst thing you ever did. You Go all the way back. Maybe it's yesterday. I don't know how far you have to go back. Go back. You need to know God has mercy for you. You need to know it. You need to know that Jesus, who's a better Moses, petitions the Lord on your behalf, but the God who has promised mercy would give it. And they're friends. They speak to one another face to face. That's who we have in Christ. Think of your worst day and double it. You have Christ. Verse 20, it says, The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, which is funny because Moses actually used his words. Pardoned according to your words of my words. But, you're going to start to wonder here for a second, by the way. I thought he forgave him. So just let's listen and we'll work it out. But, truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Remember they said, we wish we never left Egypt. We wish we never left the wilderness. Prayer answered. Back. Back you go. In fact, in 26, he's going to pretty much repeat what he just said. So what I just read to you, he's going to repeat, only this time a little more formally, okay? This is sort of the, you might think of 20 to 25, he was saying to Moses, and now he's declaring. So he he hits the gavel, here's the judgment, all right? And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, And they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness. 
until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, remained alive. So where's the forgiveness? Well, it's all over the place, actually, in the sense that if you think about what was about to be lost and was not, what was about to be lost is any tie that that people entirely ever had to the promise of God. Okay? They were about to be forever severed from God's people, and that has not happened. So God has preserved them. They, they remain God's people. When they wake up tomorrow, manna is going to continue to fall. When they leave from this place, the cloud is going to continue to lead them. When they stop, the cloud is going to come and reside in them. God is going to continue to be their God, and they are going to be his people. And that's not a small thing. That's a big thing. And additionally, God is going to give to the next generation what he's withholding from this one. So they are not forever put outside of the promised land. I think it's important that we see the forgiveness in it because as harsh as it is, they could have been struck from the record. And as a result, actually, it's not simply that the 40 years in the wilderness is a punishment, though it's serving as that at some level. God is using the 40 years in the wilderness to raise up a generation who has enough faith to finally obey. So 40 years from this date, they're going to arrive at the same place and God's going to say to the younger generation, I need you to go up. And they're going to say, yes, sir. They are going to do exactly what he tells them to do, at least for a couple weeks. (laughs) We need to see his mercy. And we need to see the nature of his forgiveness. And we also need to see that life has consequences. Our decisions, our choices matter before the Lord. You put your hand on a hot stove and it hurts. It's just life. We make decisions. Sometimes we make good decisions of faith. Sometimes we make bad decisions of faithlessness. Sometimes we chase after our heart or our stomach. Sometimes we chase after the spirit. Our life is sort of a tapestry. It's a map we're drawing as we go along It has byways and and detours and all sorts of things in your life. God knows it. There may be things in your life that forever shut some doors. You know, I say to my I say to my son when he went to high school, I said, from this point on in your life, all you do is close doors. Every door in the world is open to you day one of ninth grade, and now you start selectively and unselectively closing them. Well, we know that. We know we've closed doors in our lives based upon things we've done. But I will tell you this. Tomorrow when you wake up, God will still be your God. And tomorrow when you set out, he will go before you. And his spirit has not abandoned you. 
Just because your life has taken a turn, God has not departed you. Why? Because Christ, who is a better Moses, has sought for his consistent faithfulness to us, even though we are inconsistently faithless to him. God has not left you. And God thinks about the next generation, and God thinks about the church, and God's desire remains to bring his people home. And there's great hope in that. I'm going to close this in prayer and um, give us a question. You know, we probably think of this very naturally as individuals. What does it mean for us as a church? And I would say, you know, if and when we, we build, which I believe is, is a when and not an if, that's not the end of our faith. It's the beginning of the next session of faith, right? When we, when we plant another church, and I believe it's a when and not an if, that is not the end of faith, but the beginning of a new life of faith. Wilmington, certainly you understand that. Planting, and then the real work begins. God's goal is not to drop us off at a land of promise, but to lead us in. Let's pray. Lord, be with us. Encounter us individually and corporately. Lord, I, I do hope you confound the person here who's got it all wrong before you. Grow in us faith, Lord. To the person here who needs a job or a better job, Lord, I pray that they would get a better job. But I pray more than that, that they would grow in faith to the marriage here that longs to be better. Certainly, Lord, our hearts pray in agreement that it would be a better marriage. But stronger in faith. For the childless mother here, Lord, it's easy for us to lift her up to you. Long that she would have new life in her arms, but more than that, may she grow in faith. To the person whose health is failing and knows that they will not long be on this earth, it is simple for us, Lord, to pray for health. But more than that, Lord, may they grow in faith. May each of us grow in faith, Lord, all the time and everywhere. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.